The sun was searing hot and unrelenting. The humidity was suffocating and there was barely enough room to take a step as there were thick crowds of local people in every direction. It felt like we were endlessly climbing a mountain, being pushed and so closely packed together. You could feel the breath and smell all strange types of odours. The heat and humidity created by these thousands of people moving at one at Swan up the mountain to the Mother Temple. Bes- Beskar was beyond many, uh, was the Mother Temple. And this experience was beyond many, many hours in a sauna. Many burnt incense. And as we went, the air was so thick with smoke and all types of fragrances. It was the holiest day in the Hindu calendar in Bali. The whole week before the festival, most of the women had spent hours, day and through the night, making intricate and beautiful offerings, sitting on the platform of the family shrine in the yard of the host family I was staying with. At the last moment before leaving our host family's home, they remembered that we needed to wear a long, tight batik sarong. My friend and I were the only foreigners we saw that day amongst the thousands of worshippers. People carried all sorts of offerings, from incense, fruit, flowers and intricate hand-woven creations. We had not been allowed to take anything even, some, even a bottle of water. After what seemed like an eternity and millions of steps later, we arrived at the central part of the temple. It was so tightly packed, my Aussie friend and I moved up to the back to observe and to try to find some air to breathe. She was an atheist and I had become a Christian about nine months earlier in high school. The the image that was in front of us has never left me. There were no no ornate gods like you see in many pictures of Balinese gods. There were three huge, and if you can imagine, roughly similar size to the rock thing behind us but without the cross in the verse. There were three huge ornate stones just towering above all these people. They were roughly cut stones. They weren't beautiful or polished. They were roughly cut with no features whatsoever except for a batik skirt wrapped around the bottom of them. Thousands upon thousands of local people passionately bowed and worshipped them. I'm going to fast forward now about 25 years. We had newly arrived in Taiwan. Our Taiwanese team leader was helping us to understand the local culture around us. We were living in a working class, fairly industrial, and where many people were highly religious. You don't need to go many streets before you saw an ornate local temple. The air was often thick with people burning incense and fake money to their departed family members. However... 
The day we visited a large, extremely ornate community temple being built in our neighbourhood. Our team leader wasn't sure whether they would want to let us in. So we were just looking out the, out the outside. But when, when one of the caretakers saw a couple of strange white faces, he was very excited and wanted to show us around the temple. At that point, they were actually making the idols at the front of the temple. Much of the temple had been built, and, and I'm sure you've seen pictures, beautiful architecture and colourful and um, lots of money gone into the building. But at that point, there was at the front, they were presently building three, three gods or three idols. And it was just amazing to see them being made. They were at different stages of being made. The first one... Um, they were making out of, basically out of paper mache. So I'm sure many of you might have done a school project of a globe or a volcano or something where you put paper mache on a balloon or something like that. This, this is what they were doing basically, except there wasn't a balloon. I'm not quite sure how they did it, but you could see inside to the emptiness of the god's stomach. The other two idols, they were intricately putting little bits of gold film onto them quite tiny little bits of gold, putting them one by one, very intricately um, building them and making the layers of gold. The guide told us that the process would take them many weeks to build up the layers of gold and that these, and these gods that would finally be built after quite a number of months or even a few years yet, there would be many thousands of people come to bow, bring incense and worship them. Morning everyone. Thanks Julie. So Julie just now is describing um, an idol uh, in, a, in a Taiwanese temple uh, it's something that we're not very used to, that idea. Um, but the reason why they went to this expense, this massive expense, uh, to make these idols was so that they, no expense was spared to make the God look beautiful and impressive. The end goal of uh, making these gods, these idols was to glorify their God, to see that it was powerful and impressive. Uh, as I said, we're not so used to that idea uh, in our culture, but uh, it, for much of the world, that is, that is a normal thing still. But a Taiwanese temple is not very different to the world of 1 Samuel. The Israelites were told not to do that, not to make idols, not to make their own images of their God. But it was a part of the culture of all of Israel's neighbours, including the Philistines. And in this chapter, chapter 5, we read about an encounter between an image of Dagon, their chief God, and Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh wasn't represented by a statue, of course, but by the Ark of the Covenant that we read about in this chapter, a box that contained the Ten Commandments. 
the Philistines were used to thinking of any god as something that could be manipulated, moved around, used for their purposes. And they thought that Yahweh could be captured and controlled and humiliated by being put next to Dagon. It was a battle for glory and they were convinced that the score was Dagon 1, Yahweh nil. But this chapter is a graphic lesson for both the Philistines and the Israelites and for us. And the lesson is that Yahweh cannot be manipulated. He will not be controlled, but he will be glorified with or without his people. His glory will shine through, often in the most expect, unexpected ways. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for this story in 1 Samuel 5. We thank you for the graphic demonstration that no matter what circumstances your people find themselves in, uh, no matter how dire things seem to be, um, you will be glorified. You will show yourself to be God. And you do that in this chapter. And you do that in our lives. Father, speak to us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, I've got three points this morning. The first one is that Dagon loses face. Dagon, as we heard in the chapter, was the chief Philistine god. He was the guy on their flags that they waved at football matches. He was their pride and joy. Last week, if you were here with us, we saw in chapter 4 that Israel had been defeated by the Philistines. Disaster has struck. Eli the priest... And his two sons were struck down all on the same day. But the worst thing of all was that the Ark of Yahweh, the box representing God's presence with his people that lived in the middle of the tabernacle, the Ark was captured. What this meant to Israel was captured by the wife of Phinehas, Eli's son. She had just had a baby boy, but she lay dying from a labour. And Pete pointed this out last week from chapter 4. Let's just revisit it quickly. For chapter 4, verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father, father-in-law and her husband. As Pete said last week, in Hebrew, the name is Ikaved, meaning no glory. Kaved is a word for glory. Israel had lost its glory as it seems that God's presence had left, literally, through the ark. But it also looks like the reputation of Yahweh is now in tatters. Was, not, was Yahweh, the living God, not strong enough to save his people? How did he allow the ark to be captured and treated like war booty by these enemies of Israel 
His glory was on the line. And the way that we read that the Philistines dealt with the ark was meant to rub the Israelites' noses in it. Look at the description of what they did in verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. It sounds like Yahweh has been chained up like a criminal and rendered helpless. The ark is carried into Dagon's temple and put down right next to Dagon. It's an act of humiliation. The victor gloats over his captured God. Now you may be thinking at this point, wait a minute Marshall, the ark isn't God, everyone knows that. The living God can't be confined to this box. And yes, that is absolutely true. But we saw last week that that's the way that Israel treated Yahweh. As if the ark really was God. As if they could carry him round in this box and treat him as a magic charm. And that was the way that the Philistines also treated Yahweh. They would go and bow down before their god Dagon in his temple and so they treated the Israelites' god in the same way that he could be confined to this box. And so the Philistines set up this very visible reminder that they were the winners and Israel were the losers. Dagon was the winning god and Yahweh was humiliated, sitting there like a trophy in the trophy cabinet. And early the next morning, the people of Ashdod come to gloat and see the ark sitting next to Dagon. But when they walk in the temple, what do they find? Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Instead of the ark being humiliated, Dagon is the one kissing dirt in front of the ark of Yahweh. And he's helpless. Notice that the people have to stand him back up. Then the next day, the people go and see what's happening. Surely by now, Dagon is going to show that he's the boss god. Verse 4. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Once again, Dagon fallen on his face. Not Yahweh, as the Philistines expected. Now back in chapter 3, we are told that Yahweh was with Samuel and spoke through him. He would let none of his words fall to the ground. Yahweh and his plans would not fall, but his enemies would be brought down. In chapter 2, Hannah in her prayer 
said, praise God, saying, chapter 2, verse 10, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Hebrew word here means broken to pieces, shattered. The enemies of the Lord will be shattered. And here we have Dagon lying there, shattered, headless, armless. In the Hebrew, it's literally with his face to the ground before the face of the ark of Yahweh. In a face-off with Yahweh, Dagon loses. He literally loses face, as now he's left without a head. Things have not gone according to plan for the Philistines. They thought they could use the Ark of Yahweh as something they could manipulate, that they could use for their benefit, to put on display as a trophy, but maybe also to help them to add to Dagon's power somehow and give them, give them extra power and success. Now they had two gods for the price of one sitting in this temple. Now I said before that we're not that familiar with the idea of going to a temple and bowing down before a statue, but in many parts of the world that, that is the normal thing, that, that, is, that is normal life. Uh, Julie mentioned that we lived in Taiwan for a number of years. Most people in Taiwan would have something called a god shelf. In their house, uh, a mantelpiece looked a bit like this. Normally they didn't have that many gods. That's a bit of a, a god collection, a bit of a god collector. Um, but you would have one or two gods sitting on your god shelf, kind of a mantelpiece. Um, and, and there might be a kitchen god or, or some other god. And the idea was that you worshipped, if you worshipped them in the right way, they would look after you. They would bless you. You would get what you want. You had the God in your house because it could help you. And it stayed there in the place that you put it at your convenience. It didn't move. It was there to serve you. And that was what the Philistines planned for the ark, that it would stay put there for their convenience. But of course Yahweh didn't, doesn't live in the ark. He wasn't at the beck and call of the Philistines. Just as he wasn't going to be treated like a magic charm by the Israelites that we saw in the last chapter. The Philistines thought that Yahweh would be humiliated. But instead he ends up being glorified that's our second point Yahweh's glory shines through and it, he does that he shows his glory by making sure that the ark doesn't stay in Dagon's temple as well as Yahweh leaving Dagon's temple armless and headless kissing the dust he also brings grief to the people of Ashdod. Pick it up in verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. The word for heavy means 
the word keved means glory. And I think there's a deliberate double meaning here. Remember that in chapter 4, Yahweh's glory had left Israel. Well, the message here is that Israel, God's people, might have lost God's glory. Israel might have been humiliated, but not God, not Yahweh. His glory is made known despite the sin of his people. God finds a way, like he always does, of showing his power and glory. Well, the citizens of Ashdod suddenly thought that having the ark as a trophy maybe wasn't such a good idea after all. So they gathered all the Philistine head honchos and they put their heads together. What are we going to do with the ark of the God of Israel, they say. Well, they come up with a brilliant idea of sending it to the city of Gath. Gath is another Philistine city. Now, it seems like the king of Gath was a long way down the food chain of the Philistine rulers. Uh, Perhaps there was a bit of rivalry between Ashdod and Gath over the latest State of Origin series. Whatever reason, the other rulers thought this was a genius move to send it on to Gath. Well, uh, but the people of Gath, well, not so much. The people of the city, young and old, were afflicted with tumours again. So, then in turn, the good people of Gath naturally thought that Ekron, another Philistine city, might like taking a turn of hosting the ark. Well, as it turns out, the Ekronites weren't that excited either. Verse 10. Um, as soon as the ark came to Ekron, they said, they cried out, They have brought the ark here to kill us. Suddenly it dawns on the Philistines that perhaps it would actually be better off not in um, Philistia after all, but maybe we should send the ark back to Israel. Because once again, verse 11. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Once again, God's hand was heavy on the city. Again, that word for glory, keved. His glory was shown against the city. God's glory was shown in the way that Yahweh would not let the ark be treated like a trophy. Or an idol. In the next chapter, we'll find out that he does indeed bring Israel, bring the ark back to Israel. This chapter is a story of God showing Himself to be God, of showing His glory no matter what. It's God showing that He will not be manipulated. He will not be treated as a trophy. Or a magic charm. That's what the Philistines tried to do with the ark by putting it in Dagon's temple. And that's what the Israelites had done back in chapter 4. Remember they took the ark with them into battle thinking that Yahweh would go with them and give them victory. They thought they could manipulate him and use them, that they, he would bless them just because they had the ark with them. They thought Yahweh couldn't possibly allow Israel to be humiliated because then Yahweh too would be humiliated. 
Well, guess what? God showed Israel that he didn't need Israel to show his glory. And even the capture of the ark by the Philistines couldn't take away his glory. And friends, that applies to us today. God doesn't need us. He will be glorified with or without us. Like Israel, we can't presume on God. We can't presume that he will bless us as a church and as individuals no matter what. Sadly, we're all too familiar, aren't we, with the fall, the story of the fall of Christian leaders, many times in very public and spectacular ways. Moral failure, that, that uh, if we don't repent of it, it will take us out of the game. But perhaps even more of a danger for us is spiritual laziness. Going through the motions but having no passion, no fire in the belly for the gospel, no passion for people coming to know Jesus, for mission, for seeking God's glory. That's going to sideline us, friends. God will still be glorified, make no mistake, but he just won't use us. He will find another way. And then my last point is that just as Yahweh refuses to be manipulated, he also refuses to stay put where we want him to be. Yahweh will not stay on the God shelf. I talked earlier about the God shelf that Taiwanese have in their homes. The gods will put where you wanted them to go. They would stay, stay in that place, stay where it's convenient for you to have them. And they were there when you wanted them to. And when you didn't want them, you ignored them. That's how the Philistines tried to treat the ark of Yahweh. But he refused to let the ark stay on the shelf next to Dagon. Now we might laugh at their stupidity. We might think, how ridiculous it that they think that they could manipulate and control the living God, the God of the universe in that way. But I want to suggest that we do the same thing. Of course, it's in a much more subtle way. But we still try to put God up on the God shelf. We still hope that he will stay there when we want him. We still hope that he will be there at our convenience. I think we are all prone to a mentality of worship being for Sundays and the rest of the week being for us. Sundays we serve God, Monday to Saturday we serve ourselves. And there are some areas of our lives we are quite willing to let God take control of, perhaps our marriage, our, our relationships at church, serving at church. Maybe even our attitude at work. But then we can so easily have these no-go zones in our life. No God, that's, that's my life, that's my area. And in our culture, that's so often in the area of money. 
accumulating wealth, building up financial security, leading a comfortable life. And we end up being no different to the world around us. We want God to be there with us, but we want him to stay in his place where it's convenient. But God won't be mocked. The Philistines appeared to get away with mocking Yahweh. They defeated Israel. They made off with the ark. They put it in Dagon's temple. But pretty soon the chooks came home to roost. Pretty soon the Philistines got what was coming to them. God would not be defied. And it's the same for us. In the short term, it might look like we get away with it, putting God up on the God shelf, coming to him when it's convenient. But friends, God will not be mocked. We cannot defy the living God. If we treat him lightly, his heaviness, his glory may well fall upon us. His glory will find a way of shining through. God has a way of showing that in the most unexpected ways. He did it with the Philistines. Just at the point when all seemed lost, Israel humiliated, the ark captured sitting in Dagon's temple. Yahweh brought victory from the jaws of defeat. Not victory for Israel, not yet at least, but victory for Yahweh, God showing that he is God. Last week we saw that God's glory was ultimately shown in the cross. Just at the point where Jesus seemed utterly defeated, humiliated, with his enemies mocking and gloating over him. He was glorified in his death. As he defeated death itself and Satan and the powers of evil. And friends, we share in that victory. His glory is also our glory, even though we deserve to be in the place of Israel. Because like Israel, we have gone astray, we, we have rebelled. But no, out of pure grace, even though we deserve to be sidelined and humiliated, but by pure grace, we see that we will share in that victory with Jesus. In the cross, Jesus, God will win out, has won out, whatever the circumstances. He will show his glory and that means that we too will share in that glory of forgiveness and eternal life. And the Dagons of this world 
the false gods, the Putins, the tyrants, the oppressors will end up crushed beneath his feet. Let's get the band up and I'll pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your glory. We thank you, Father, that your glory isn't dependent on us. We would be in trouble if it was. But Father, your plan, you make sure your plans come to fruition with or without us. And Father, you have shown that you've already done that through the cross. Where victory has been gained, victory is guaranteed. The powers of evil, um, the forces of oppression and injustice have already been dealt with at the cross. Your glory has already been shown. It only waits uh, the final consummation of that when Jesus returns. Thank you, Father. Amen.